I want to do something that we haven't done before. And so I'm listening to David talk, and I, I couldn't help but having this thought. You know, um, coming to church on a Sunday morning, if it's about anything, ought to be about us in our messy lives, through our messy lives, trying to reach out to a God who's often very mysterious, um, yet we long so much to, to grab a hold of him or sense his satisfaction or sense his presence. And so through our mess and then through that my- mysteriousness of God, we long for a connection. And that's really, if you strip it down, kind of what um, we do when we come on Sunday mornings and we worship. And so what I want to do is... is uh, is see if someone's got a psalm or a portion of a psalm that they would just read for us this morning. So, you know, if, you, if you've got a psalm or a chunk of psalm that you dig, um, just raise your hand and uh, maybe, maybe Ken will bring you the mic um, and uh, just read it for us this morning. We're going to just cut some stuff out of the sermon, so this is what we're going to do. I think we've got a hand up back there. This is Psalm 18. I won't read all 50 verses, but just the first few. <laughs> I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 18, 1 through 3. Let's do another one. Does someone else got a couple hands here? Um, This is Psalm 103. It's been my favorite one for a long time. and um, I'll just read a few of the first verses. It says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the one I chose. It must be a God thing. Uh. <laughs> one last psalm. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Let's pray. Father, may all the people praise you. May all Antioch praise you. May I praise you. May my family praise you. 
Father, let our lives be lived as if they're a prayer to you, as if they're worship to you. May we be living sacrifices. May we learn on this earth a little bit, a, a glimmer of, of the glory and the joy that will be when all we have is to worship and to praise and to enjoy you. And Father, this morning, may you do something amazing with me. In Christ's name. So, um, <laughs> just got upstaged by Scripture. Um, that proves my point. This morning, what I wanted to do is, we're in a series on John, and I wanted to step back from that for one week, because I love mountain drives. I, I grew up all over, but um, in Maine for a while, and then the East Coast, and and, you know, you get some of these mountain drives, you know, the winding roads. And, and every once in a while you get little, a little opening and you just get these vistas, you know what I'm saying? Um, and you kind of you slow down maybe or you pull off and you just want to take it all in for a minute and then you move on. And we're in John and, and we're in a sequence where Jesus, I think, really puts us right at the throne of God and, and, and helps us see that it really is all about one thing and it's all about our God being a big God. And so I wanted to just take this Sunday and pull back for a second and say, you know what, um, that really is it. It's about God being big. It's about a big God. And, uh, and I was going to give some reasons. I'm going to give some reasons uh, or some things that help us um, see God big or get in the way if we do Him wrong and make God small. But one of those is Scripture. One of those things that will take your view of God and just explode it is if you spend time alone in the scriptures reading words like that, um, they're living words. It's, it's an amazing thing that way. But So here's the idea of this morning. I firmly believe that we are um, application junkies in America. And I've told you before as a congregation that when I was in seminary and I took my, they call it homiletics, which is a fancy word for preaching, right? And I'm in this preaching class, and, and the idea was you have to have an introduction um, that's like some like story or whatever, which always felt like a waste of time to me. Um, ten minutes just you know, doing some story or reading some newspaper clipping. And then you explain Scripture for a chunk, and then at the end you spend a third of the sermon applying it. And then I began to think that that seemed like a big waste of time to me too. And I'll, I want to explain a little bit more why I think that chunk at the end of application is a waste of time. I think it's a waste of time for this reason. Um, little, I know more things that I ought to do than I will ever actually do. Um, Paul says, I'm the worst of all sinners, and I think that the reason he's the worst of all sinners is because his knowledge of what he should be doing um, was so far greater than everyone else's knowledge, and here's what he's actually doing and here's this implementation gap. And Paul's like, man, I, I am able to do this much of what I know I should do. Other people, like, they only know this much, but they're able to do this much. They do less than Paul, but, you know, I mean, Paul just knows so much. He's like, man, and I just, there's no way I could live up to that. Uh, I'm the worst of all sinners. That's kind of where, where I think Paul's at. But... We all know more than what we're ever going to be able to do. Um, I have so many little principles and little rules and little good um, cliches and all this, right? 
Uh, I, I, know, I know thousands of them. I get like three or four in every sermon I ever listen to. And I just can't live them all out. I can't. I don't even want to live half of them out. It's okay. Um, I went to confessional yesterday, so even though I don't perfectly manifest. So here's the thing. Um, we spend a lot of time just heaping up and adding more little cute ways of trying to um, manufacture ourselves into a holy, right living and behaviors and all this other stuff. And we constantly try to fine-tune to manipulate our behaviors to just be better or more perfect. And what I began to realize is simply this. Um, you don't have to teach people when they're really attracted to somebody how to love them. You know, somebody really attractive comes in, you don't have to say, um, now here's three ways to, to really want that person. Um, when somebody's not attractive is when we begin to say that stuff. Well, he's got a great personality, you know, and <laughs> went, to, went, went to Harvard or Yale and is really smart and is really bright. So less attractive, we heap on the principles and the little ideas. More attractive, it's, it's, just, it's there. Um, I've hated a lot of people in my life. Am I alone? I mean, <laughs> I have. I get really mad when somebody burns me, you know, or, or like turns me into an enemy or something like that, or, or lies to me or cheats me, right? Um, and I never had to learn how to hate. When somebody burns me real good, um, I naturally show body language. It naturally frustrates me. I naturally get bitter. I naturally lay awake in bed at night and have to wrestle with it. Um, you never had to teach me as, as a kid um, the right ways of showing body language. Well, if you, when, you, when, when somebody's like worthy of hate, your brow furrows this way, not that way. And you've and you got to position your hips like this is the right way to show. I mean, I never had to learn that. Um, do you see what I'm saying? I think what happens is, is we fine-tune when the whole issue is we're, we're on AM and we should be in FM. It's not fine-tuning. It's a, it's a radical paradigm shift. I think if God is really big, that we will stand in awe of Him the way we would if we were standing underneath like a space shuttle taking off. And we, we stand there and we're in awe and we're in a box and God's not. And I think when God is small and we're moving about the cabin a lot and we're really distracted and we, we do this wandering heart bit and this forgetting bit, then we, we try to like control each other. Stop doing that. Do this instead. No, don't do that. This is a better way. And we try and control behavior and box each other in when there's nothing there drawing our awe or our wonder or our respect out of us. There's, there's nothing big to affect our emotions. I don't need any more principles. I can't live up to the ones I've already got. I need a big God that'll stop me in my tracks. A big God that I'll be in awe of. A big God that I want to respond to. It invokes a response. And that's where worship comes from. It's not... 
is this the right way or the wrong way or the notes off or this or that? It's, it's just, man, kind of God's so big, all you got to do is say, go, and I'll, I'll respond. And so I'm not big on application, so I went into Scripture and I said, you know, because at Antioch we kind of got a thing with the elders and leaders and the pastors. Uh, every single thought we have, we just take it back to Scripture and say, is this like a biblical thought or is it not a biblical thought? If it's a biblical thought, then it's got some merit and we just go with it. So anyways, I took this thing back to Scripture and I said, let me see how God does this. And in Job, um, Job's got a messy life going on and, and he, he begins to grumble and complain and he looks to God for some principles or some answers or some logic. And God blasts him for like multiple chapters with this. Who are you? Who, Job, are you to question me like this? Where were you when I began the, the, the world or breathed life into these animals or created this or knit this together? Or where were you when I just separated all this other stuff? Or, you know, I mean, where were you? You weren't the job foreman. You weren't the one creating it. You weren't thinking it up. Where were you? And, and God goes on and on like this. And then finally, Job goes, okay, I get it. Um, you're big and I'm not. You're too wonderful for me. You're too lofty for me. And he, he humbles himself. And just all of, all of it just goes out and there he is with a big God. And he didn't need some preacher to give him three application points that all are an alliteration, like P, 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 so that you could remember him for like three days. Um, I look at Jesus and, and he's got people coming to him for practical things like you fed us yesterday and all these people come to him and, and they want to eat more and they want to like talk about politics and they want to this and they want to that and Jesus is like I am we're going to talk about that next week and they like pick up stones to kill him you know I am the man I sent down from heaven You've got such a big God that here I am in the flesh for you. Just, just take that in. You know, they question Jesus and he's standing at the temple and Jesus says at the temple, he's like, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. And what he's saying is, look, I'm the temple. I'm where God and man connect and meet in me. I'm that person, not this building, but me. You kill me in three days, I'm going to be rise from the dead. Okay? So they're asking for a sign. They're asking for bigness. And what Jesus says is, I'm the bigness. That the gospel, the heart of the gospel, Jesus dying for our sin, the gospel is the bigness. How do we see a big God, man? We, we look at Christ and... We see the gospel and this grace and him dying for us, and all of a sudden we're like, whoa. So that's where John Newton, I think, was with that, that hymn, Amazing Grace. Whoa. Jesus tries to point us to the bigness, and he doesn't say, here's how you handle the Romans. Here's how you handle this. He's like, no. Look to me. Peter walking on water. He didn't say, nah, Peter, man, you were taking too big of steps. <laughs> you got to walk lighter. Um, 
It's like right here. This needs to be less, and this needs to be more. That's where faith comes from. You take your eyes off of that, and, and you can come up with all the principles you want, but the issue is your heart, your mind, your affections are not consumed by the bigness of me. You're not going to have a lot of faith. You'll just have a lot of principles and no real faith, no mechanism, nothing driving it. So um, there's other examples I think I had too, but I don't see in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that the idea is um, just how rewording and being ultra-creative with our cliches and just retrying to... It, the issue is about us. And are we consumed with a big God? Are we in awe of a big God? So I've got... There's four things. We're going to cut it down to three. Kip made me a cool little graphic. But um, there's four things that I think can ham us in. That if we see them wrongly or if we don't realize that there are issues in our life, um, these, are, these are things all about the idea of a big God. And if we're not hemmed in by these, so it was a square, now it'll be a triangle, right? Because um, we're going to cut one out. It still hems you in. Um, if we don't get these, we bleed out. Our focus, our attention, our, our perspective, our paradigm bleeds out. And the first one is happiness. First one is happiness. We talked about this last week. I want to talk about it one more time, and then I'm going to get off it for maybe a month. Um, God is here, and we're here. And we simply have a choice to either pursue God or to pursue pleasure or something else that will fulfill us. And the crazy thing about happiness that we don't understand is that God has set it up to where He is our very happiness. St. Augustine says this, A joy there is that is not granted to the godless. But to those only who worship you, it's not granted to Godless, but those only who worship you without looking for reward, because you yourself are their joy. This is the happy life, and this alone, to rejoice in you, about you, and because of you. This is the life of happiness, and is not to be found anywhere else. What Augustine picks up on in and we begin to realize, I mean, I beat this one to death, but John 15, we're going to get to, Jesus says, Remain in me, you do this by obeying my commands, and I say this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. As a good shepherd, he's come to give you life and life to the full, that it magnifies. When I'm with my kids, I just want to see that joy on their face. That's the, the dynamic of that relationship. And the greatest joy is when they're, they're satisfied in me that they want to be with me to find their happiness. And God created us that our ultimate happiness would be in Him. And so as we pursue Him, we find what we desire, which is this fullness of joy. 
If we think that fullness of joy or happiness is somewhere else, we run away from God, and that, that means that we disobey God, and we're never going to find it. The interesting thing here is that uh, we, we say words all the time when we're quoting the Psalms and stuff like that. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice in the Lord. We, we have these wonderful, emotional, evocative wonderful words that talk about our desire and God coming together and there's this wonderful thing, this fullness of joy. We talk about that all the time, but then we forget our own theology and we kill joy. And we do that because we look around and we see that this is instant gratification. epidemic of instant gratification. You know, I mean, I remember the first time I offered my kids, like, hey, you can have a candy now, or tomorrow I'll take you, like, out to the store and you can buy something big. And they were like, candy now. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, I think they're slowly going out of that. But we're an instant gratification culture. Right now. We want our happiness right now. We can't wait for God to bring along this slow and steady state of being, this joy that comes through character building and, and habit formation, we need gratification now. And I've got desires that I could reach out and fill now, so I want to do that. And the Christian community goes, oh, that's the essence of sin. It's the essence of sin, is filling those desires that God doesn't want you to fill. So here's the thing we do, which is really silly. We're like, oh, gratification, bad. Gratification equals sin. Have you, have you caught, caught kind of the subtle thing that just happened right there? We, we crossed out the wrong word. See, all through Scripture, this wonderful phrase, wait on the Lord. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, wait on the Lord. The Lord shall renew your strength. All of these things, this hope that we have in heaven, we long for a Savior. We long to, to return, to be brought home, all these things. You see, in Scripture, it talks about delay of gratification. What was the problem? The problem wasn't happiness, and the problem wasn't joy, and the problem wasn't even pleasure. The problem was how we were pursuing joy or happiness or pleasure. The problem was we wanted it now and we weren't willing to trust God. So instead of having faith, we were going to take matters into our own hands. Life is relentlessly difficult, said my Old Testament professor in seminary. And he said we either submit to God or we strive to fix it all ourselves. And we go wrong because we leave what God has told us to do or asked us to do or, or with words of comfort tried to encourage us to do. And the problem here was instant. Instant. We need to look to God as our source of happiness and joy. But we killed the word gratification. Here's how it affects your size of your God. Um, you naturally desire good and you naturally don't desire bad. You are hardwired with desires for gratification. And part of maturity is the endurance or the temp 
uh, the perseverance to be able to wait for that gratification even when the going gets tough. And not just go into like, like just instant gratification, which is really lazy gratification, lazy desires, right? When we kill the idea of gratification, we do something really weird to people. We, we tell them to shut down their, their life, their concern, their, their, their excitement, their joy, their ability to rejoice, and we, we focus them in on doing things that will make them the right kind of person. Because if we take away gratification and we take away desires, then we can't see that God is the one who meets those desires. So if there's no answer to these desires, I have to just kill it. Well, then what's left? I'll just do what I'm supposed to do. When we understand that we have these godly desires to find our ultimate happiness in Him, at his, his right hand are pleasures evermore. God designed this that we would go, wow, for real? I look at all my friends pursuing instant gratification. It just messes it all up. Wow, there really is the right answer. If I really do trust you, you are trustworthy. If I, if I, if I walk by faith, you will bless me, the blessed life. And, and wow, for real? I can magnify these desires. I can fan this flame. I can put gas on that fire because it's only going to lead me more back to you. God, you're so big. I want you. I want you. Forget your three Ps. If I can't look at God and go, man, that's what I want. I want to rejoice in you. I want to be filled by you. You satisfy my hunger. If I, if I can't say that because hunger is bad, what we're left with is anorexic Christianity. I coined that like five years ago, and I never said it because I thought I might offend. But you know what? Anorexic Christianity is a deprivation Christianity that says there is no hunger that really ought to be filled for the fullness of life. And so we deprive ourselves of what would bring us health because we're more concerned about appearance. We don't need more anorexic Christianity in America. We need robust, full-bellied, hungry, desperate, longing Christianity. And if we do, then we will realize, wow, and we'll stand in awe. Um... Here's the deal with that. We, uh, God calls us, and what we look at, focal point, I don't know how you draw a video, movie camera, I don't know, focus. God calls us, and this is how we look at it, man. I gotta give up. That's what I'm focused on. I gotta give up all this. Man. Ah, I know that guy gave it all up, but he's kind of nerdy. Um, it was probably easier for him to give it up. Um, maybe I could just give up this stuff. I don't really care about this, anyways. I could do without that. Maybe, but maybe I could hang on to this stuff to follow God giving it up. Man. Uh, I really have to lose a lot to follow God. Oh, this is frustrating. Look at all I'm giving up. Maybe I need to go sit in a sermon and, and learn three ways to give up better. 
Um, when we focus on the bigness of God here, we naturally give up whatever is hindering us from moving in the direction that we sense as the satisfaction or the fulfillment or consummation of our desires. You turn the head, you turn the body, right? That's what the, I was watching diving in the Olympics last year. Wow. Um, there's a lot of flips they can do. But um, I really want to get somewhere. I'll climb over a fence. If I really want to get somewhere and there's no road, I've got a Jeep, you know? Um, if I really see my kids and they're smiling, I'll, I'll finally pick them up and take my turn. <laughs> you know, I had nothing to do with anything. It's gratuitous. Um, it didn't make any sense, did it? Um, if you really see something as desirable, if you really see it in the window of a store and you want it bad enough, if, if, if the ball game is really that important, if that movie has Denzel Washington in it, I love Denzel, but if, if we are focused here on the bigness and how it's going to feel right and it's going to work and it's going to satisfy, when we're focused on that, we don't think of what we need to leave or how to leave it. We just, we just leave it. And killing the idea that gratification is, is something normal and saying, gratification, bad. I got, I got in trouble for talking about, um, I guess what I called lemon-sucking Baptists, like sucking lemons last week. Um, to my defense, I think it's true. <laughs> you, you get into a culture that says gratification is bad, you just, after a while, the, the, you see a body language. Um, you get into a culture that goes, man, look at that God that we worship. How desirable and glorious and majestic and wonderful and loving and gracious and kind and patient that God is. I let it all go. And what we see with Jesus is, that his uh, true disciples got this. The people that couldn't really follow him were just always just, uh, and they didn't understand it. Um, we're going to actually skip two things. Um, I'll just bring in one thought from the next one, but it was ambition, so I, I don't know. We, I guess we can show the cool graphic. But, we, we think that, um, that's Kip. Kip does that. Um, we want to pursue a life that becomes. And we think that happens apart from God, so we treat God like a junior higher treats his mom. Mom, come on. Like, get off of me. My friend's around. Stop playing with my hair. Like, you know, just, you know, like... Mom, did you really write my initials and my, you know, the tag on my shirt? Oh, this is so embarrassing. Like, can't go to camp like this, you know. Like, but like the way a junior hire treats his mom, it's the way we begin to treat God. Like, okay, just go away. I gotta go make my life. 
So we get these ambitions apart from God. But here's the interesting thing about this. I was thinking about it, how this all kind of fits together. Real simply, if we, if we go a different way than God, and God loves us and wanted us right here with Him, what's the emotion? I mean, at rock bottom as a parent, what's the emotion that God gets? It's jealousy. It's jealousy. It's not envy, which would be saying, I'm envious of the thing that you're pursuing. I wish I was as big as that. God's the biggest thing. That would be idolatry. God can't worship or make something bigger. He, he's not going to envy. What he's saying is, this is so small compared to me. I'm the source of your joy. I'm so big. Why aren't you here with me? I love you. I want you here with me. Why are you there? I'm jealous I'm jealous of that thing that has you because you are what I love. And so the emotion that God has is jealousy. Why are we over here with this thing that's smaller? We're committing idolatry. We're there because we think it's bigger than God. Because you think your job's bigger than God. Because you think money's bigger than God. Because you think a reputation or a name or success or stardom or just comfort or whatever, pleasure, or just getting out of where you feel trapped. Just somehow you have to so much that that's bigger than God. Or job or whatever. House. Very one. We are committing idolatry because this is what is just dominating our thinking. So God is jealous because he wants us here we're committing idolatry because we don't have a big God and we're seeing these things as bigger than our God. And we've got to begin to understand that we don't offer sacrifices to God the way a junior higher treats his mom. Psalm 40. And I love this psalm. You too made it into a song once, back in the 80s. But it's all about a new song and... and and it goes on and it goes on and it talks about God's wonders and the things that he planned for us that no one can recount. Would I speak of them, they would be too many to declare. And then in verse 6, Psalm 40, verse 6, it says this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. So the Israelites were supposed to bring these sacrifices and offerings and God's like, you know what? I didn't want them. I asked you to bring sacrifices and offerings so that you would come to me and see that I was big, so that you'd be here. I don't need them. Newsflash. When you put food on this altar, like it doesn't show up on my dinner table. And, oh man, I'm really getting hungry. Would they bring me in a sacrifice so that it'll show up on my dinner so I could finally eat? Like God doesn't need our sacrifices. We don't feed him. He's not dependent on us taking care of him. If this was for our benefit, that we would bring him our best, that we would do it regularly, that it would remind us symbolically where we're at and that we depend on him to take care of us, that we are the dependent ones, that our ambitions apart from him are foolish, that our ambition to be, be, to be glorified by him, to be magnified by him, when we humble ourselves underneath him, he lifts us up. So our actual flourishing comes from God taking and lifting us up when we understand that we, we bow a knee here. 
God's saying, man, this, this was for you, not for me. Sacrifice and offering I did not desire. But you, God, have, have, have my ears you have pierced, which was the symbol for a slave. You, you take an awl and a door, and, and, you, you, and a lot of it was voluntary in the, the year of Jubilee, which means the slave gets to choose to stay um, by being marked. It is so good here, I want to stay in the house of my master. And David says, my ears you've pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. You wanted me. And go down, and it, uh, it's amazing what it says in verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. See how these things fit together? When we give up on a life apart from God, and then we submit to a life in God, may these people that do this, that get it, that, that, that are going to voluntarily become slaves to you, you're, you're the master, God. May those people, may they rejoice and be glad in you. May they be gratified. May they find happiness. May that be a pleasure to them. May they rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. The Lord be exalted. Our ambition is to glorify, to worship, to be underneath, to be in relationship with God. Right here at his feet. And there we're going to find fullness of joy. Um, we're going to skip wonder. Um, and we're going to go to insecurities. I want to read you a quote. Insecurities, and I chose that word on purpose because I think we need to talk about insecurities more. Want to know why? Because you all are very, very insecure people. And so am I. In fact, I'm neurotic. And if you know me well, you know that, right? We are all insecure people. There are things in your life that you are really insecure about. You have buttons, you have things that you don't want people to know because you're insecure about them. And so we don't talk about insecurities because we want everyone to think that we're all put together and we can be confident by having arrived. And so no one wants to talk about insecurities. And I think we'd be a lot healthier if we just were like, yeah, I'm goofy and I know it. And this is why we are insecure. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says this, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, but He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Me. He's put eternity in the hearts of men, which means we can, we can understand and comprehend what eternity is, what perfection is, what having arrived would be like, what, what being complete would mean. And then we also know that we're not there. Here's what Reinhold Niebuhr says, a German theologian, um, lived in the middle 1900s. He says this, The truth is that man is tempted by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself doubly secure. And by the insignificance of his place in the total scheme of life to prove his significance. 
The basic insecurity of human existence means I've I got to find some way to anchor myself or make myself secure. And the fact that I'm insignificant in the grand scheme of everything, I'm one of how many billion? That I'm going to try and prove my significance, make my name great, that it would last, that it would be out there, that everyone would see that I am more significant than one out of six billion. But here's the reality of that. We are all dying. We know that we were made for eternity and that there's something timeless about it and beyondness about it. But we realize we're on this ship that's sinking. Uh, call it the Titanic. So we're like, man, I'm supposed to live, yet I'm dying. I I'm supposed to be somebody, yet I'm going to go down just as another one of those people. And so we look around the Titanic and we're like, man, there's a banister. Let me like lash myself to it to make myself secure. Let me go run out on the bow of the boat to, to be prominent, to I'd be significant. Everyone else that's dying will see me dying well. Or it doesn't matter though, because we're, we're going. See, our insecurities aren't going to be satisfied with the small or the temporal things around us. Your fear of your looks, or your fear of your weight, or your fear of your intelligence, your insecurity about something dumb you did a long time ago, your insecurity about things that belong to you or, or whatever. Nothing here is going to totally fix those things. What fixes those is when we reach outside of the Titanic and say, God, only thing that can rescue me is you. Only you, God, are, are big enough, like a helicopter coming over a sinking ship, to reach down, which you did through your son, grab hold of me and say, you are significant enough to me for me to save your life and bring it home with me where you can have eternal happiness or, or blessedness. So only with, with God are we going to find um, the security that we're loved. You are loved. It's not a little, you know, nursery rhyme, Jesus loves me. It's true. You yourself are loved. And you are significant enough and your situation is dire enough that God is going to reach in, grab hold of you, and lift you out. So what I love about the Psalms, if you read all 150 of them a couple times through, you'll realize two phrases that dominate. And they're this. Your unfailing love, which speaks to our insecurities, like God knows. He's not going to find out something that's going to make him turn away or be ashamed of us. He knows all your insecurities and loves you without wavering. There's nobody in this room that's going to love you like that. I guarantee you, I might flinch if you tell me some stuff. I'll recover, but I'll flinch. God won't. It's unfailing love. The second phrase is enduring love. His love endures forever. He will lift you out of this situation and bring you to a place where you will through time, get to know and experience and enjoy that love of God. His unfailing love. His enduring love. We have a God that is big. And we're in this situation where we have insecurities. 
And the truth is, I, I think it goes to a box here because when we see the bigness of God, it boxes us in. We used to give out these stress balls. <laughs> Brandon hoards everything, like he keeps one of everything. So I had to go to him and be like, hey dude, we still have one. But, but the idea here, it's like those balloons, you know, when you squeeze one end, the other end gets bigger. 